Welcome, bienvenidos a la Cura Podcast, decolonizing Latinx health and reclaiming traditional healing. I'm your host, Francisca Porches Coronado. This podcast is a project of mi gente in collaboration with Resilient Strategies. Welcome, everybody. Welcome to La Cura Podcast, where we are focusing on decolonizing health and reclaiming ancestral healing and knowledge. I'm your host, Francisca Porchas. Last week, during our first episode, we had a very powerful conversation with Manuela Arciniegas and Manuel Criollo about our community, our Latinx community, and what we're healing from, or what we're attempting to heal from, from those, for those of us that believe we need to heal, and for those of us that are curious about that specific topic. So today, I thought it was appropriate, since one of the most popular forms of healing is a Western form, which is um, Western therapy, Western psychology. I thought it was important that we have a conversation about this topic um, this week to kind of set us up for the rest of the conversations, um, not only for this ep- for this season, but for pretty much the rest of the of the podcast conversations. In today's episode, we're going to talk terapia. Over the past few years, and particularly since the presidential election of Donald Trump, more and more of our black and brown communities are centering mental health in the conversation about our health in general, on how best to cope with these times, and on the yearning and at times hopelessness for political change. And I don't know about you all, but I find a growing number of people of color are naming the fact that therapy is not just a quote-unquote white people thing. But the fact that our folks have believed for generations that therapy is only for the quote-unquote locos or meant just for the blancos is not an unfounded belief. There is recorded history that details the pathologizing of our people and people of color in the most racist way, especially black and brown communities. In the name of pioneering the field of psychology, for example, something I read recently is that there were studies that were conducted with sex workers, female sex workers by Freud and his predecessors back in the beginning of the 20th century that were profoundly sexist and classist in practice and also in their results. Today, Western educated, industrialized, rich and quote unquote democratic societies make up the bulk of samples in psychological research. Contributor to Talkspace, Reina Gattuso, who I was reading um her contribution recently. She wrote that, quote, during the civil rights movement, white psychologists invented a so-called mental illness, dubbing it the protest psychosis. These psychologists used the racially motivated syndrome to explain away the reasonable rage of black Americans demanding an end to segregation. End of quote. She goes on to say that 60 years later, racial disparities in the mental health care system remain, including the lack of access to mental health care services for communities of color, inadequate addressal of the real psychological trauma caused by racism, and racially motivated diagnosis. At the same time, many of us, including myself, have and currently benefit from Western mental health disciplines of psychology and continue to do so. Much of this has been because of the hard work of the past three decades of Latinx, Black, and from what I understand, East Asian mental health practitioners and researchers who have been had breakthroughs in what has been traditionally an elitist, racist, sexist, and homophobic field of psychology. One of them is our guest today. Her name is Cristalis Capiello. She is joining us today to discuss the racist roots of Western psychology and some of the significant advancements that reformers like herself are making in the field for all of our community's well-being. So before we begin the conversation with Cristaliz, a little bit about Cristaliz Capiello Rosario. She received her doctorate in counseling psychology from the University of Georgia in 2016. She's currently a tenure-track assistant professor in the counseling and counseling psychology in the College of Integrative 
Sciences and Arts at Arizona State University, Capiello Rosario's research interests include Latinx psychology, acculturation measurement, the accumulative process of Puerto Ricans in the island and mainland, and its relationship with health disparities, multicultural and linguistic competence, and multiculturally informed ethical standards. She has multiple publications and national presentations in the areas of Latinx psychology. Gabriela Rosario has also held various national leadership positions and is currently the media coordinator for the National Latinx Psychological Association. She's also a mother of a almost two-year-old, Andres Estelan, and is married to Stephen E. Saul, who is also an assistant professor at Arizona State University. Welcome, Cristaliz. Thank you very much for the invitation. I'm glad I'm here. It's an honor to have you. I've known Cristaliz now for almost two years, and she is one of those really good people that during the deportation of one of our members, a very public deportation that made a lot of news, she is one of the folks that reached out and um, wanted to know how to support our organization, Puente Human Rights Movement, wanted to support other people in deportation proceedings, wanted to figure out how to plug in her students. And so I was very moved by her reaching out. There's so many folks in the academic world that that don't ever pretty much plug into movement or go outside of the university. And I could say Cristalis is the complete opposite of that. And so I've, it's been an honor to to know you and to to get to also know your politics, which are really exciting to me because I, I do believe in therapy. I do believe in all the good that can come out of psychology. And I feel like the more of our people that are in this field, the, the more that we can see the benefits of that. So I want to start with just some basic questions. Mm-hmm. We want to know a little bit about you and how you as a Puerto Rican who decided to join this field to to take on this work and and what is it that led you to to this work mm-hmm. well first of all i i thank you again for the invitation it's it's truly an honor and i wouldn't be here if it wasn't for my family and i wouldn't be here if it wasn't for fabulous mentors who showed me uh what it was to be a social social justice oriented psychologist and academic and so it feels it feels incomplete to just present myself but i'm i'm here on behalf of my you know representing my family and and also thanks to the mentorship of Egaldega Romero Melanie Dominic Rodriguez who are part of my of my familia But to answer your question, um, what led me to to where I am today, it was primarily inspired by my own family's journey of migration. We lived in the island of Puerto Rico until I was 15, an economic crisis that initiated during the 80s and 90s, just like many migrants today, because there was lack of employment, the high crime rate. My family didn't have any other option but to come to to the states and what i found both fascinating and frustrating at the t- same time is that even though we had advantages that no other latinx community has for instance we because we are us citizens we can migrate without restrictions once we're here we don't have to go through the same struggles of you know com- having to have visas for employment, we can automatically uh, apply for employment, social services. But what I kept seeing in my own community is that despite these advantages, we had the highest rates of anxiety and depression, cardiovascular disease and diabetes. And while I'm seeing this in my community, and I'm also seeing it in my parents, the inability to speak English, initially kept my mom from being a teacher, which was her uh, profession in the island. My dad, because the 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 test to become a plumber, to have the plumbing license was in English. He, Even though he was a brilliant, I think still think that he's brilliant, he couldn't complete it. And so they were dealing with these issues of culture shock and acculturation and stress. And so when I went to, to um, at that point I was in high school, our first experiences of discrimination, I was pretty much told that I wasn't smart enough to go to college here, to go back. My sister, nobody could understand her at work. And once I enter 
uh, college um, to complete my my undergraduate, it's going through similar challenges of language barrier, not knowing who to go to, not having any professors that looked like me or talked like me. So my grades suffer. I, I was almost kicked out of school because I was placed on probation. Um, and it wasn't until my mom sat me down and she's explaining to me all these different majors. My mom was the only one that spoke a little bit of English. And finally, I, I came into to psychology and I finally found a place where I could find some language to try to explain what was what was happening in my own family. And so, you know, I completed my my bachelor's. I did some work, particularly with substance abuse counseling, but I kept seeing the same pattern of um, Latinx families that were struggling, but no treatment that was culturally competent. That inspired me to then apply to graduate school. Similar were the interventions were Western interventions in which, you know, language was not considered, cultural values were not considered. And then after that, after doing some work with Latinx communities, I decided to apply for my doctorate. That's where I found my mentor, Ed Delgado Romero. And I always remember him telling me that our the main goal was to serve our community. We started a collaboration with an immigrant um, serving organization in, in Athens, Georgia, particularly during the DACA process, opening the doors for people who didn't have access and we were at risk of deportation. And so when I completed my degree and came here, I knew I needed to do the same thing. So that's when I reached out to you and be like, I'm here. Uh, I'm not the expert. You're the expert. You tell me how I can use my skills. And, and so that's pretty much the why uh, why i'm here <laughs> well <clears throat> what do you think as a puerto ricana you said you found language that you could within psychology where you could finally express mm -hmm. certain things i'm curious what what was that and um and especially after explaining both what was happening at a at scale in puerto rico mm -hmm. And what you saw was happening to the community and to your your own family. Mm -hmm. What were some of those? What were those? Some of those things in the field of psychology that sort of spoke to you that helped you kind of make sense in a different way mm -hmm. what was happening? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and and so one of the one of the things that one of those constructs and those concepts that I started to learn about, which is what I now I study, is this concept of acculturation, and these are the potential changes that may happen as people from different cultural groups, they interact with each other. And the idea that at least that they've sold Puerto Ricans all this time is that the best way to be successful in the in the United States open migration is to assimilate. And this is a similar story that a lot of our Latinx communities have been told. And it's not only within our community, you know, immigrants from, from all over the world. This idea that you need to let go of your culture, you need to let go of who you are and pretend to be somebody that you're not. So if you adopt the culture, the language, the behaviors of of, of white Americans, that's gonna that's that's gonna be the recipe for success, and that's what my family thought upon open migration, and to see that that was not actually the case, to see that people who who disconnected from those traditional values and behaviors were experiencing more stress because what we started to see is that as you dis disconnect from your culture you may also start experiencing discrimination from the dominant culture. So now you're in sort of a limbo where you don't belong anywhere. You don't belong here. You don't belong there. And through my own experience in my own family, I'm seeing that, no, wait a minute. This doesn't have to be the case. I don't have to let go of who I am. I don't have to let go of my Puerto Rican culture. I can maintain it. I can be proud of who I am while still learning aspects of the of the new culture, like the language, for instance. Both my sisters are, are fully bilingual. So we can sort of navigate... Um, both aspects, but then when we experience discrimination or rejection from the dominant culture, we have our our familia, we have our community that that offers support. And within within my own community, what I you know as I mentioned earlier, despite the advantages that we have pre migration and post migration, it just didn't make sense that even though we have these advantages, it's not translating 
to better outcomes, right? So if there are really advantages, then how come we have uh, the highest rate of depression uh, compared to, to other Latinx communities or anxiety or cardiovascular disease? Um, so most recently, what my team and I have been uh, focusing on is this idea of internalized colonial oppression. So unlike other Latinx countries who have been able to to obtain independence and, and fight for independence, the island of Puerto Rico is still a colony. And one of those things that that I grew up with was this idea that America was better, white was better, white culture, white society was better. And my goal was to marry white, to behave white, to talk white. But that came at the expense of internalizing that Puerto Rican was inferior, Puerto Rican was not intelligent, Puerto Rican was not good. And I see it in in the data that we collect. We recently uh, completed a study in which uh, we interview uh, Puerto Ricans who were born and raised in the island and then migrated to, to the United States. And it was a very interesting dynamic in which we would ask them, you know, how would you describe yourself as an individual? And most participants will talk about, well, you know, I'm, I'm intelligent. I'm a very giving person, hardworking. But as soon as we would ask them to talk about their Puerto Rican siblings and, and community, they would add, they would describe, uh, they would use very pejorative terms like lazy, unintelligent. And and then when we would ask, well, how would you compare Puerto Ricans with white Americans, that same dynamic of, well, white Americans are civilized or they're more intelligent or they're, you know, they're hard workers. So this mm-hmm. idea, right, that that I need to let go of who I am to be to be white and how that in itself translates into bad outcomes. And what we keep seeing in my community is that the more you have internalized Puerto Rican culture and society as inferior and white culture as superior to to you, the more depression, the more stress you you experience. So when we talk about in my community about decolonization, at least in my community, the first step is to, to finally understand that the plight of Puerto Ricans is connected to our sociopolitical status, and there's no way to disconnect our experience from from the sociopolitical relationship with the U.S. and the cultural hegemony of of the U.S. and the island. Like the term "the colonizate," that's been everywhere since the storm and since um, Promesa, right, mm-hmm. all over the island, and has been sort of popularized in the movement and. And definitely interesting conversation of, you know, what does it actually mean to decolonize ourselves both mm-hmm. internally and then collectively, starting with our own beliefs and values and how we relate to ourselves and mm-hmm. each other. And that's definitely part of the conversation we had during the last episode, which was really interesting. Mm-hmm. So it sort of gave you the language, but it also gave you the tools to kind of prove what you knew yes. <laughs> and what you saw. Yes. Right? Yeah. And as, a, as you were saying, as a, a young person who was kind of struggling still with English and trying to figure out how to navigate a very different culture and especially going from, it was it Georgia that you first arrived? Uh, no, Orlando. So Orlando. Okay, well, there's, there's a few yeah. more Caribbeans. There. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, when we first came in, it's, it's a lot different now oh, than yeah, it was right. in the That's late true. 90s. Yeah. Right now, there's a lot. Yes. Um, versus Miami, mm-hmm. right? Very different yes. places. We yes. must not confuse it. Still yes. the South. But how, so when you decide to go into the field of, mm-hmm. of psychology, mm-hmm. what was that experience like as a Puerto Rican? I assume, you know, you mm-hmm. probably had a little bit more proficiency in your English mm-hmm. and felt a little bit more confident in the country. Mm-hmm. I'm curious about your experience as a, as a brown person mm-hmm. in that space. So, you know, it, it was it was a missed bag of challenges and triumphs. I think that's the best way to describe it. I was, of course, very excited to have been given the, the opportunity. I was even more excited that my advisor was a person of color. It was... I think maybe the only second professor during my bachelor's, master's, and now, you know, doing my my doctorate that was a person of color who was proud of, of being who he was and didn't engage in what we call like passing behaviors. Like he didn't, he 
he was proud of, of being a Latinx uh, professor and, and psychologist. And that alone just was a model for me. And it opened my eyes to, okay, I can be who I am. I don't have to pretend to be somebody else. And there was, so there was a lot of pride accompanied with that. Um, I still remember the very first day of class, my parents came with me. <laughs> That's what we do. And as we walking through the doors, my mom is telling me, you know, our dreams and our goals are walking with you. And while that, it was a, a point of honor and pride and at the same time, a lot of pressure. And so, as I said, everything I do is because of them and, and I'm here because of them. And at the same time, there were challenges. I was the only Puerto Rican student in my program, in my cohort. I was one of only two who spoke Spanish. And so that lack of cultural communication, I remember also in the South, there were things that I didn't understand. And so having to ask, you know, how, <laughs> how do I navigate this? Thankfully, most of my professors were very supportive, but there were also many times in which I experienced a lot of microaggressions in which my intellect was questioned because of my Latina um, identity and also because I was identified as a cisgender woman, particularly when I would take a lot of statistical courses, like, why are you doing that? You don't have to do so much. Um, so my intellect and my capacity being being questioned. But thankfully, I had a wonderful mentor and advisor and other people that he connected me with that got me through that that process. And all the challenges really came when I started doing clinical work, because most of the, the participants or most of the clients that we saw were people who identify as white. And I was terrified of my accent. I was terrified that I was going to be seen as incompetent. So I remember always editing myself. And once I got over all of that and and I could finally realize, no, I could be myself. I remember even translating for my white <laughs> clients, like, this is a dicho in Puerto Rico and I don't know how you would say it. And that's when I discovered that I could use my upbringing, I could use my knowledge, my cuentos, my dichos, and that they actually belong in the therapy room. And then reading about wonderful scholars like Lilian Comas Diaz, who talks about the power to name yourself and, and the cuento therapy. And I re like, oh, no, I can do this. I, I can another moment in which I can be myself and, and I don't have to pretend to be somebody that I'm not. So those were certainly some some challenges that that we that we had within the within the system. But was some of what you were reading did you feel like it still was off in terms of being culturally grounded and just really marrying the realities of the societies we live in and yes. communities? Yeah, definitely. I, I think a lot of times, which, you know, when we think about help-seeking behaviors, as particularly as it relates to mental health-seeking behaviors, seeking a counselor, seeking a, a psychologist or a psychotherapist, uh, we tend to focus on why don't our community go, right? So we are hyper-focused, hyper-vigilant on how can we figure it out how to get the Latinx community into the door. The problem with that is that you are dismissing that our community, we have our own ways of healing, right? We don't have to depend on a counselor or a psychologist. There's nothing wrong with that. It's, it's you know, if, if we have access to it, that's that's great. But we have family, we have our faith communities that we can reach out to, even physicians that may be very welcoming of, of what we struggle with. So that's, I think that's something that, you know, to begin that conversation needs to be stated, because I think we focus too much on why don't we go, besides focusing on what are we doing right now? What are we doing to heal, to heal ourselves? But when we do go, what we see is that psychotherapy a lot of times is a pseudo assimilation process in which when we go and we tell our story, the interventions that follow are Western interventions. So for instance, with parenting, if we talk about an issue with parenting and communication, the strategies that we're given is strategies that may be more suited for, for another community. And when we talk about our connection within our families, um, that's 
typically misconstrued as being overly dependent. So I remember always telling my my colleagues and and my friends, you know, I lived at home until I was 24. (laughs) And they look at me like I had three heads. Serious (laughs) issues. And so it's the overemphasis on the negative without, I'm like, no, wait a minute. I'm actually glad my parents were very supportive, particularly, you know, having having a a home to go to and, and parents who were caring. So unfortunately, when we work with a counselor or a psychotherapist who's not aware of themselves. If the counselor is not aware of their own cultural biases, if they're not aware, if they're not aware about how power, privilege, and oppression influences their life, they're going to project that into their clients. So again, psychotherapy just becomes a way to teach our clients or teach Latinx clients or communities to behave more like the Western way or to follow interventions that may not be, do not align with, with what we do and what we believe in. So yeah, that's still very, is very prevalent. And so one of the things that, that I do with my, with my students is to sort of (laughs) present a different framework. And that has led to, you know, very privileged and honored to be part of that project to to formulate ethical guidelines for psychological work or Latinx community. So one of the things in psychotherapy that we typically may see on TV or we learn about is is how the counselor is very detached and there's not a lot of conversation or connection or the client may not know a lot about the the therapist's life. So there's just like a blank stare. And one of the things that that I tell my students is you need to get to know your your client, you need to be able to appropriately self-disclose because within our community, there's this principle of I, I am because you are. And as I've mentioned multiple times, I'm here because of my family. You cannot disconnect my community and my family from my experiences. So when I go into a room and the focus is just me as an individual, you're missing a whole host of dynamics that influence my decision making, my behaviors, my attitudes and, and my beliefs. Not to mention that within our own field, a lot of counselors are very uncomfortable talking about issues of religion and spirituality. And from my own experience and, and there's a lot of data to to back this up, within our community, spirituality and divinity, they're integral parts of, of who we are. So if we have a therapist who's not even comfortable having those conversations, then how are they going to feel comfortable integrating forms of healing that that are so effective in our community that we tend to rely on and depend on? So that's that's where the disconnect may be, that the therapist may even speak Spanish or they may be Latinx, but unless they're aware about our forms of healing and the issues that, that influence our community – there's there's going to be a mismatch and and unfortunately the client is just going to leave because they feel that they're not speaking the same language and I'm not only you know Spanish but literally cultural there's no cultural connection there's no cultural understanding. Yeah, that actually reminds me a lot of reasons I've left therapy and sort of just walked away and never really called back the therapist and Cristalis and I were talking about this earlier but I realized that. My spiritual tradition is such a big part of who I am. I've been initiated into a West African tradition for more than a decade now. And I've, with all the deep conversations I've had in therapy, I've never actually brought it up. Mm-hmm. And that, and I just realized as you were saying that it's like, it has a lot to do with what I believe is the stigma mm-hmm. that is behind it, that I feel like I'm not going to be understood because it's so that they'll see it as mystical and magical or that they'll see it as non-material material conversation. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of it is my own stuff. I've never tried it. Who knows? Maybe it would have been received well or that a lot of my life decisions were based on that. Mm-hmm. And so anyway, I just totally yeah. had a moment where I realized I've never talked about it. <laughs> but I think in, in, that same, in that same space... That's where understanding our positionality and dynamics of power and oppression take place, right? So I really believe that healing and counseling happens through the relationship. And I understand that eventually what ha- the dynamics that happen outside of the, the counseling room are going to 
be parallel to what happens inside. And unless I am uh, as a counselor or psychologist, I'm aware of that. And knowing that I may have to be the one who who makes the first step and talks about dynamics and cultural values and asking the client, you know, tell me about what values are important to you and help me understand your your perspective. So unless we take that responsibility and that has been my main frustration with our training and even within multicultural counseling is that we're not aware of our own xenophobia as counselors. And initially, we just have this resistance. We, my, I was talking to my students yesterday about this, that we immediately become so overwhelmed because we start thinking, well, there's so many cultures and how can I possibly understand them all and be competent and all? And it just becomes a cop out. And it just we say, OK, then I'm just going to put the responsibility on on the client. So we tend to train our students to believe, well, when you're working with somebody that looks different than you or may have a different background than you, just ask them, how is it to be, you know, a part of that community? So that puts all the burden on the client and all the stress on the client. And you're just recapitulating the same dynamic of power and oppression inside of the inside of the therapy room. And so my commitment, myself as a psychologist and, and as somebody who has a lot of responsibility in training other students who are, you know, at the master level or, or doctoral level is that you need to take responsibility for this work. You need to do your own work. You need to be able to, when you don't know the answer, consult, talk to, to community leaders, get versed in, into the community, learn what's important. Because if we keep putting the burden on the on the client, <laughs> we're we're just really adding more more stress. Mm-hmm. Can you tell me to take a little step back? Mm-hmm. Can you tell me a little bit about what were some of the? I don't know the history of psychology. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what were some of the like pillars at the founding of this sort of discipline? Where does it come from? What were some of the pillars that I think helped inform the practice overall? Mm-hmm. Um, I know it has evolved, uh, thank God, <laughs> and I know it has helped a lot of people, and we'll go into that, mm-hmm. but that sort of informed a lot of what it looks like t- today. Mm-hmm. Well, a lot of a lot of the, the advent of the interventions that we have today were the result of, of the assessment movement. Um, so trying to understand human behaviors and how to classify people into into different groups and what we have at the beginning of of the you know the psychology field particularly here in the US is our as I said our need to categorize people understand what their abilities are what their challenges were but unfortunately our very racist past and some of it which still <laughs> we see today Whenever we would see differences, instead of understanding those differences, we saw differences as a deficit. And so what ended up happening are black and brown communities were mislabeled. Even here in Arizona, so there's during the early 19th century, there was a, a mining community in which the majority of the community was of Mexican descent. And the children spoke Spanish. And they were trying to sort of see what was the educational, uh, the cognitive abilities of these children. And instead of using measures that were appropriate or that were in Spanish, they gave them, you know, assessments that were in English. Of course, the children didn't do well. And so they fail. And instead of, well, wait a minute, maybe it's the assessment. No, we decide to mislabeled this entire community of children as being at that time, uh, the term that we used to use, mentally retarded, which precluded them from having access to to education. We have other instances in which um, measures of, of reaction time, right? So we would see that sometimes black and brown communities did better even than, than white populations. Well, instead of talking about it as an advantage, it was interpreted as well they have more primitive brains <laughs> so eugenic exactly right so even though we know better now and we have certainly improved our ways of assessing cognitive ability or cognitive disabilities or challenges it was used to inform migration so during the 1920s 
people who came from from Eastern Europe, they were believed to be feeble-minded because they were given measures in the English language. Of course, they couldn't understand. So we, again, we mislabel entire communities as being unintelligent, which then translated into we don't want people from those countries. And as I said, even though we have made tremendous amount of progress, we don't use the same tests. A, a lot of them have improved. Our society's conversation are still based on this fallacy that black and brown individuals are less intelligent because they're basing it on our history of, of pseudoscience and, and intellectual racism. So, as I said, we have done a lot, but it makes sense as well that our communities have a lot of mistrust against psychology because our history has not been good to them. So it is on us. It is the burden is not on the community. The burden is on counselors and psychologists to reach out and to repair that relationship and to acknowledge that we have a very sordid history. And I think that is the only way in which we can move forward and we can have any form of healing if as psychologists and counselors, we we admit to it, we acknowledge it, we have our time to process it. And then how can we collaborate with the community so that we can we can be more culturally and linguistically competent? But until we do that, mm-hmm. <laughs> we are just counseling may not be what our community see as as the best way of of healing. Yeah, it almost sounds like you're either acknowledging and trying to continuous continuously reform as a as a therapist, mm-hmm. psychologist or in this field mm-hmm. of mental health or you ignore it and continue to affirm mm-hmm. the status quo mm-hmm. that is racist and homophobic mm-hmm. and classist mm-hmm. and and it also sounds from the examples that you were given that either these people conducting the studies were completely ignorant and like unaware that giving tests in English were going to produce these type of results, or it was a way to use psychology or the field of psychology and its research as a tool to further advance mm-hmm. a white supremacist mm-hmm. agenda mm-hmm. Um, everywhere, mm-hmm. right? With mm-hmm. people of color mm-hmm. or with uh, people who are not original white settlers of this country or white people mm-hmm. or straight people, mm-hmm. <laughs> all the other people that mm-hmm. have been historically oppressed and mm-hmm. marginalized. So it sounds like to some degree, this has been used as a tool yes. um, and, and it makes me think of eugenics and how eugenics, yes, it feels like a thing of the past where the medical industrial complex was sort of very much bought into uh, its studies and research and experiments that were horrible on our people to prove that we were subhuman mm-hmm. And that a lot of that still remains today and mm-hmm. it's very present in, in the medical industrial complex mm-hmm. and the way that our health is both not delivered and delivered mm-hmm. and the way that, that we have access to or the services that we, that we receive, right? So yeah, it's, it's just what I'm kind of drawing from, from what you, the stories that you're telling from, from the past mm-hmm. and what we see today. So I'm curious, who are, are there some folks that like are like, the heroes of like this field are like they're like oh no 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 this is not this is not how it is and so we're gonna we're gonna actually make a sharp yes. turn in this direction yeah so um so as I said so the the multicultural movement within psychology was really born out of the it was a convergence of of different things happening uh, beginning with the civil rights movement and then we have some pivotal. Uh, moments in within our our own the, the history of our discipline, starting with um, the the foundation of the Association for Black Psychologists, and it was during the, I believe the nineteen sixty eight convention in which a group of black psychologists just left the convention because psychology was not addressing or meeting the needs of the black and African-American communities in the U.S. And that's where uh, the Society of Black Psychologists was founded. And, you know, they now they have their own their own journal and they even have their own ethical code because they understand that to do culturally responsive psychotherapy with black and African-American communities 
our ethics codes. It's, it's based on a Eurocentric idea. So, and out of that, during the 1970s, we have the Association uh, for Hispanic Psychology, which is now uh, the National Latinx uh, Psychological Association. So now you have not only the civil rights movement, but also movement within the field of psychology, which has blossomed into into five ethnic minority psychological associations. Uh, most recently, MENA, which is uh, the Middle Eastern and Northern Africa um, Association. And we all... Uh, you know, they're fathers of, of the field. And then within within Latinx, uh, um, Dr. Carlos Albizu Miranda, who was the first president of the Association for Hispanic Psychologists, then later have one of our one of our funding members, Dr. Patricia Arredondo, who uh, was one of the leaders in the effort of actually producing multicultural guidelines for um, for counseling psychology, for the counseling in the psychology field. And it's something it's a model that we still use today. And while we have advanced, um, so that multicultural counseling movement has been at the forefront of telling us, no, wait a minute, for you to be for you to be culturally competent, you need to first have awareness of yourself. You need to understand how you have been shaped by society, how your privilege, how your identities that are both oppressed and also identities of privilege, how they inform how you, you know, how you just navigate society. And so that's just the first step. And it's a lifelong process. And I always tell my students, you know, there are areas in my development in which I feel pretty confident and pretty comfortable. And then there are other areas where I know I need to do further work. There are other things that I need to acknowledge. What are some of those guidelines that you feel like pretty breakthrough guidelines from, you can either speak to the, to the, black psychologists mm -hmm. that made that radical move in 1968 or, or the Latinx psychological association mm -hmm. within, um, within NLPA. Um, so for years now we have been working on, on producing this ethical guidelines and it came from years of conversations with leaders within the American psychological association and just, telling them the the ethical code that we need to follow as psychologists is not responsive to our community. So for instance, one of the principles within within the APA ethics code is this uh, principle of beneficence. And because it is Eurocentric, the idea is that I need to do what is best for my individual client. But as I said earlier, you cannot disconnect us from our community and our clients. So when you become the sole focus of counseling and psychotherapy and I ignore everything else, am I really doing what's best for for my community? Another issue, another standard within the APA ethics codes is this idea of multiple relationships that you need to have a complete separation from your client. You need to be distant from your client. If a client ever offers a hug or a gift or an invitation, we're supposed to completely dismiss it and just tell the client how it's inappropriate. And but within our community, that that's not... It's not one of our tenants. It's not one of our values. The psychologists, the counselor, they become an important person, particularly because now they, they have some, perhaps so many intimate details about, about our life and our family. So we become the automatic expert and we eventually become a part of that family. So there are going to be multiple relationships because I may see my counselor and my psychologist as a member of, of my community, particularly if you're working in a place where you may be the only Spanish speaking counselor, right? You may see your client in church, you may see them in the supermarket. And to have this stance of separation and disconnection may actually do more harm than good in our community. So NLPA, along with the other ethnic minority associ psychological associations, like, wait a minute, <laughs> this doesn't make sense. We 
have tried for many, many years to have um, APA be more responsive to our needs. And when we saw that there was constant resistance, we're like, okay, <laughs> we need we need to do we need to do something else. So, for instance, the the set of in psychology, they decided to do a commentary and they go piece by piece of the APA ethics code and they responded to it and they talk about how it's not responsive to the needs of um, um, Native Americans or or um, Indian people. A beside, they years before they decided to disconnect from APA and form their own codes within Latinx community and the within NLPA, one of the things that we talk about is this idea of the connection. You need to establish a connection with with your client. And so when there are ethical dilemmas, the relationship with the client and the community should be at the forefront. And typically the APA ethics code is about protecting the psychologist. It's about how do we prevent the psychologist from having an ethical violation? And we think like, wait a minute, this, the focus is, is wrong. The focus should be on maintaining a healthy and a healing relationship with our community. So one of the one of those standards that we that we talk about in, in solving ethical dilemmas is, you know, you need to consider multiple options at the same time. It may take longer to to solve a, an ethical dilemma. And the primary focus should be how do I maintain this relationship? How do I maintain um, um, healing in my community? And if I just completely sever that that relationship, that association, I may be doing more harm than good. Um, the study of Indian psychology, they even talk about the use of the term termination in psychotherapy. So we're typically trained, you know, you first meet the client, you do counseling, and then you go through this termination session. Well, for, uh, uh, um, they talk about how even the word termination may be associated with the extermination of Native Americans and the genocide. So, Unless you unless you have this awareness, you're just gonna perpetuate harm in our in our community. So that's why uh, um, the how we call them the empaths and ethnic minority psychological associations. We have taken steps to, you know, if APA is not gonna respond, we're we're gonna do what is necessary and what is needed to do to do work psychological work and counseling work that is responsive to our community. We talked a lot about the history. We talked about some of the ways in which more radical people in this field have changed the field and continue to it continues to evolve and transform to to meet the needs of our community. And I'm curious, because you are in this field and because you believe in it, and so do I, I feel like I want people that are listening to us both to be encouraged to seek therapy if they've been thinking about it even though maybe their families have been like, you're crazy, <laughs> literally crazy, or you're not crazy. My right? family told you that. <laughs> <laughs> right. Like, yeah, that, that no, no estás loco or it's not that bad. And so, so much stigma. So for those folks that are out there thinking about it, contemplating it, and I want this conversation to be both informative in terms of like mm-hmm. having a critical look at at the field of psychology and why our communities might be thinking that it's not for them and how that's a righteous thought, but then how our communities might be thinking it is for them. And it's a way to, to one of the many ways in which to heal from whatever it is that they want to tend to. What do you feel like is the potential there to heal through, through therapy, through counseling that you've seen and, and that you believe in. Mm-hmm. We need to, and, and I think the, the main message or the best way to answer your question is to understand that our forms of healing are powerful. Our, our forms of healing belong in the therapy room. They be, outside and inside. And looking for a counselor or a psychologist that welcomes not only is tolerant I, I really dislike that work 
that word, uh, but that acknowledges and celebrates the traditions of our community. Somebody who is truly doing that work will be welcoming of those traditions, will welcome conversations about spirituality and religion, will integrate it into the counseling, would be responsive to the needs of the family and not just the individual, would not ask the children or the parents to stay in the in the waiting area, right? So that if the family wants to come together, they will they will welcome that. Um, in a more practical sense, reaching out and finding experts through, for instance, the, the National Latinx Psychological Association, we're right now building a directory of providers nationwide um, based on, you know, if you want to talk to somebody who um, speaks Spanish or somebody who you know, who identifies as Latinx, maybe not necessarily speak Spanish, but who, who has that cultural knowledge, we're building on that directory to, to, to make it easier for individuals to find, to find somebody who is competent. Another way to, to do that is we need to be able to take a little bit of a risk. And when we are reaching out to a psychologist and a counselor, we should be able to interview them and see if it's a good if it's a good fit asking them what do they think about curanderismo or what do they think about espiritismo or what do they think about you know i uh, if i were a a, a client you know this is what i have done uh, um this is what i believe in and then asking the counselor what do you think about it would you be okay with having my family come in what do you what do you do um in that in that case so having that conversation with the counselor would have to take place to make sure that the values that you bring in are aligned with the values of the counselor. And even though the counselor may not have the same shared cultural experience or they may identify as white or they may be of a different gender or different cultural tradition, are they at least aware of the issues of my community, the strengths of my community? Are they aware of the healing traditions of my community? Not only that, are they willing to to talk about them in, in counseling? And if they believe that they're welcome and that the council is able to have that conversation, then that may be a good way to, to begin. But they're sort of like, we had the same, the same right that they have to ask us all these different questions about how many children we have and how old we are. We should also feel comfortable in asking them, uh, you know, personal questions so that we get to, to, to know them. Um, and if, if we see some level of resistance or if they may be unwilling to share that information, then maybe this is not the, the best person for me. Thank you so much, um, Cristalis, for your time and your wisdom and also for your work. Because for all of us that might be benefiting from therapy or have in the past, I think you are our sort of generation, one of our generation's heroes in this field. And we're really grateful for you. And our community also um, benefits a lot from your work and that of your colleagues. So appreciate your time today. Um, and for all of you all listening, if you have any feedback or any questions um, about this episode or any other episode, um, we welcome you to share with us. You can email us at lacurapodcast at gmail.com. Thank you for listening to Lacura Podcast. This podcast is hosted and produced by me, Francisca Porchas Coronado, engineered by Michael Soto, edited by Rafael Maya. Our music is by Rafael Maya. Please subscribe anywhere you listen to podcasts.